So did you guys see this story in NPR about the power of prayer oh, and the, COVID? The actual study that's happening to see if prayer helps? Yeah. So the first thing to note about this is, just to set the table, this is, I think, a study funded by the National Institutes of Health. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. More tax dollars yeah. at work. Um, sort of like when you see a bridge going to nowhere, uh, <laughs> at least somebody lives there on the other right. side. Someone lives there. May- maybe. Maybe. I mean, or people could move you know. there. But this, this, this is a four month study launched on May Day that will investigate, quote, the role of remote intercessory multi-denominational prayer on <laughs> clinical outcomes in COVID-19 <laughs> patients. So the next time somebody tells me that social si- like social science isn't real science, the political science isn't real science, I'm just going to point them to this. Like, this is funded by the NIH. You don't get to talk about it anymore. So what, here's the thing. It's an experiment, right? right. So they're yeah. going to randomize people to a treatment. What is the treatment they're going some to receive? Some are not prayed for and some are prayed yeah, for. Yeah, there's a thousand participants in the study. 500 of them will be prayed for remotely by a group of people doing five different non-denominational or like non-specific <laughs> denominational prayers. Right. They're like meant for everyone, but one will well, be like there a you Jewish go. There's prayer. There's a problem with your study. One will be a Christian <laughs> prayer. Fuck Don't There's you have a- to do it for every single possible, uh, you know, manifestation no, of they picked five. The, the holy one? If or just whatever. like only Hindu prayer worked for, uh, for COVID-19. <laughs> oh my God. Like Ganesh. Perfect. Yeah. Actually real, real treatment solution. We found it. But this is the, this is the thing that you, so you can imagine like, Somewhere in the in the description in the write up of this, they had to say, okay, there have been a there have actually been previous clinical trials, six, I think. Um, none of them found an effective prayer. So right. they had to say something like, you know, but this time, this time it's going to be different. <laughs> We've got something new in the works this time. Well, here is the real kicker. Are you ready on for this, your brains to explode? When B, when B told me about this, we had, because we had actually, we had planned to, this happened, this this uh, news broke about a week ago and we had planned to talk about it as the sort of outro joke sort of on our mm-hmm. last uh, patron episode. And we kind of never got around to it because we had gone long a bit already and also it was just like it didn't feel appropriate to like the tone of the ending of that but then afterwards B told me uh the real kicker to yeah. this and I was like okay we have to we absolutely must <laughs> so address this it's actually the ninth study that's been funded by the NIH that has addressed the idea of remote prayer or prayer affecting um prayer via zoom outcomes particularly with blood related diseases now there are numerous other studies that have to do with prayer affecting like general recovery or hospice care or delivery or whatever there are unfortunately, dozens of these. And the origin point for this idea is actually pretty funny. There is um, a tradition at the BMJ, which is the British Medicine Journal. And every year on Christmas, they put out a satirical issue. (laughs) And in 2001, Leonard Libavici published a paper titled 
the effects of remote retroactive intercessory prayer on outcomes in patients with bloodstream infection randomized control trial. (laughs) The study purported to show, quote, whether remote retroactive intercessory prayer said for a group of patients with a bloodstream infection has an effect on outcomes. The study was farcical. The prayers that they said for these patients were delivered between four and 10 years after hospitalization and sometimes death. (laughs) Um, In some cases, these prayers were said for patients after they had already died. The reasoning for this, Leibovici explained, was that, quote, we cannot assume a priori that time is linear and as we perceive it or that God is limited by linear time as we are. Strong agree. Uh, Eight years later. This dude slaps. (laughs) Yeah, this is a this is a longstanding tradition. Like the British Journal of Medicine has done this. This is like their since the 1800s. They 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 just what they slide in for their Christmas issue. They just are like, okay, instead of being a medical journal, we are the onion now. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. And this is again, this is like decades long tradition, right? Mm -hmm. I can't Um, imagine that this is the only collateral damage that this has produced. (laughs) Yeah. eight, Eight years later, eight years later, the first study citing this um, Libovici study, which again was satire and for a Christmas issue in 2009, the first study starts actually citing it in earnest. And since then, we have had nine additional studies that NIH has funded um, and dozens more across the world. And um, people reach out to Dr. Libovici all the time to ask him on his opinions of remote prayer. And he now uh, lectures and does a lot of work around responsible ethical medical journal reporting. (laughs) 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 And there's a fantastic study that we can link to in the show notes for this that is a really good read that is actually about the damaging power of satirical work product Um, (laughs) and all of the instances in which uh, especially these BMJ articles actually have been accidentally disseminated as something that people have thought that are legitimate. And obviously the authors of that paper call for an end to this practice, or at least more clear annotations that it's satire because it's incredibly harmful. (laughs) Now now I'm just imagining like, I mean, I know that I mentioned like uh, Jonathan Swift's a model, a modest proposal a lot on this show, uh, but I'm just imagining now a coronavirus recovery report, like a, a satirical one, unlike the very real one that we just produced. Right. Um, but a coronavirus recovery report that just says like, well, if we eat the children, then we'll be <laughs> immune. We'll be immune. <laughs> yeah. Eating, eating the, the young who have the antibodies is actually what produces the immunity in humans. <laughs> and then just like literally a week later, that being like Cuomo's New York state recovery plan. Yeah. So when Artie was including this, I thought it was because, oh my God, look, the Libovici study rises again. But I didn't realize that Artie didn't even know about it and was just like, oh God, they're doing another stupid prayer study <laughs> I, thing. I just feel like, I just feel like we're all collectively letting this man down. Well, he, um, he only has 500 followers on Twitter, so you can, you can tell him how much you appreciate him. Yes. <laughs> Because DMs are probably open. (laughs) Well, I think with that, welcome to the death panel, the official podcast of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. (laughs) Thank you, Big Daddy Bill. (laughs) Thank you, Big Daddy Bill. You can join Bill in supporting the show at patreon.com slash death panel pod. You'll get a bonus episode every week and a personal uh, call from Bill Gates himself. Satire. Um, (laughs) And and a 600 page report about how our show is having no impact on educational outcomes. Let's commission um, the Rand Corporation to see whether there's efficacy in the death panel podcast. Actually, a Rand actually, Corporation like their uh, metaphysical detectives on me. <laughs> Hell yeah.
I, I'm pleased to announce that we've just received an NIH grant to study the power of death panel. Um, if you listen to death panel after you're already deceased, it brings you back to life. Right. Like a Lazarus <laughs> effect. <laughs> but real talk, like oh, I loved that, that, that um, the physician who is leading this study about the power, power of prayer and COVID, whose wife is also a physician, she is quoted in the article, turns to him and says, and what exactly are you trying to measure here? Yes. So. <laughs> Mood. Uh, moving on. Strong mood. Speaking of which, um, let's discuss well, the actual uh, sort of situation going on right now. Yes. We've got a, yeah. a bunch of really heinous efforts to plow forward with reopening the economy, capital E, of course. Mm -hmm. um, we've got some fantastic ideas about, um, you know, ways to partner with billionaires, private philanthropy initiatives to, I don't know, like track students or somehow probably defund public schools even more. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think a good, a good, uh, example is also like, you know, the fact that Mike Pence is out there saying, yep, we're, we're good to go. We're going to transfer authority over to FEMA. You know, the task force is shutting down probably June. We should be good to go. Everything's fine. You know, I, I read the, the Mike Pence news, and the the his, like his suggestion that the task force would be closed and actually kind of took it as good news just because like if you have a public health disaster having Mike Pence as far away from a leadership role in it as possible is is generally like a safe bet. I thought you were gonna say the business goons who they <laughs> stacked the coronavirus right. task force with because I mean you know. Mike, well, like, you know, Mike Pence is a familiar evil to us at this point. He's but. just one mm -hmm. ghost. What can he really honestly do? Yeah, I mean, yes, him doing his uh, doing his Reagan impression. And, and to the extent that the task force is out of the picture, it does have this sort of effect of allowing the administration to try to diffuse or disclaim any kind of responsibility um, for the way that this thing is being managed. I mean, that's, right. that's their whole goal. And I think that's why this, the CDC report is really interesting because I was thinking about this because, um, uh, at my place of employment, we are now trying to think about how to reopen, uh, or how to recalibrate our, uh, arrangements for the fall for our students. And I have to admit that we have a lot of people working on this and they're working like diligently, but it's very legitimately confusing and uncertain and the fact that there's no guidance sort of infrastructure uh from the top down i think makes it all the harder to like develop our own criteria on the fly uh for mm -hmm. thinking about what our operations should look like and to hold people accountable mm -hmm. for the eventual loss of life which again they're also making moves to try and indemnify businesses from having to yeah. uh, be responsible for possibly enforcing some of these like patchwork orders so, I mean, I guess maybe let's just get right into our main topic, which is the collaboration that was announced between the Gates Foundation and the New York State Department of Education to, quote, what was it? Use all of your technology that you have <laughs> to find a better way to uh, send kids back to school without having to send them to a physical location in the fall. Um, and uh, as we were joking about in the past, the Gates Foundation has had several other initiatives that they've been a part of that have turned out disastrously with even Rand Corporation stating in a study evaluating some of their efforts from like uh, eight or nine years ago that uh, the Gates Foundation's interventions often did more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's not funny or surprising at all that a Cuomo is like going to task a, you know, like very public 
billionaire with creating like a public private partnership that's like intended to sort of like, quote unquote, like optimize the return to to schools for New York. It is slightly surprising maybe that he would task somebody who has such so publicly like fucked up other initiatives in the past. Well, I thought that their like area of purview and best expertise was like malaria intervention, not right. um, well, and not pandemics. Like, tracking children. Right. You know? <laughs> they uh, for that you want to go to Bezos. <laughs> Just saying. Oh right. I mean, I, I guess that this is sort of like my. This is the sort of broader pattern with like these foundations. Like, I guess it's worth like zooming out and saying like these foundations. When we think about like what is the educational system in the United States. These foundations like are a huge piece of what directs the sort of telos of like educational policy. Mm-hmm. They just use money as a brute force tool and they're like, you know what? You know, we just we just know better than you. We're going to uh, we will force you to be free. Um, and that's like <laughs> when I think about this, this RAND study on like everything the Gates Foundation has done, they just come in like your school system is failing. We know better. And then we're like, we're going to do things like we will do teacher recruitment now because we think we can right. make sure that you you have better uh, retention rates uh, of teachers. So then they bring in this human resource company uh, to like run these uh, HR departments, basically. And they now sort of like put uh, principals and other like building level administrators, like 25 percent of their time just completely gets eaten up by like filling out all of these forms, all of this like data reporting and then surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, teacher turnover increases uh, right. after they bring in like the spe- the the uh, the geek squad, I guess. Which is possibly helpful if your actual goal is to, I don't know, disrupt teacher unionizing efforts or something like that. Right, right, right exactly. I mean, I think one of their suggestions uh, was, I think it was like from 2008. 13 or 12 or something where um, they were trying to put fitness trackers on middle school students to engage. engagement trackers, yeah, to, engagement pedometers, I right, believe they were called. Yeah, sorry, engagement pedometers, <sighs> yeah. which were uh, sent like a small uh, electrostatic charge across the top of the skin to read like certain responses and things like that, sort of like akin to like, I don't know, like a like a cheap heart monitor or something like that that you would wear in your wrist, which one is like wildly inaccurate. We know that, but two, it's oh, they're like, not just cheap. <laughs> they're not just cheap heart <laughs> monitors. They are Q sensors, right? Oh which my God. If, that's literally the name of it. <laughs> like, if you look into what these things measure though, it's kind of akin in a lot of ways to like a lie detector test. So if right. you're a middle school student who is maybe watching like a, softcore historical fiction movie and you like get turned on by like hot ladies in greek costume i don't know like what do kids watch in high school anymore like shit like it'll probably shit you know yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, it'll probably like trigger like your cue sensor saying that you are engaged in the episode when maybe you're just a horny 14 year old boy watching (laughs) boobs on tv during class like yeah i mean that that engagement there's not a lot of discrimination in terms of engagement it could be please excuse my dear aunt sally and there could be engagement you know in that sense (laughs) But but also, but also like, I don't know. It it also just reads like basically like attaching like a bunch of like cattle prod dog collars to children. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. it's like it, it electric fence collars. Yeah, exactly. It really doesn't seem very far off of like something that like as soon as you like dip your head and like are, are seemingly falling asleep, it like shocks you awake again. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I don't really see the difference between that. I mean, I guess fundamentally the thing that that all of these billionaire funded education public private initiatives are all like set up to do right is to like corporatize and then like standardize whatever the educational system with the like understanding that like the problem is that like shitty teachers are in these schools but like Uh, i mean yeah obviously like the quiet part is just that like if you're poor it's a lot harder to learn in school (laughs) and like obviously none of these are going to like intentionally are set up not to to deal with like outside factors but i think also the way that we've seen like educational consulting happen in the united states um over and over again over the past like 30 40 years has been like also very specifically to disrupt unionizing efforts with Mm -hmm, teachers or collective bargaining efforts like we saw that a lot in the state of florida you know jeb bush had like was one of the people really enforcing like some of the no child left behind stuff as as uh, strongly and loudly as his brother demanded. And <laughs> while there were some good things that came out of it, you know, in a lot of ways, we've learned how this sort of like pressure for constant improvement in testing scores does nothing except for undermine like the ability of teachers to teach their job quality and their ability to organize because suddenly you Mm -hmm. have data that can be weaponized against teachers in order to like deny them bargaining rights. Well, and to the extent that the Obama administration embraced um, policies like the, those suggested by the Gates fund. Well, yeah, but uh, race to the top included stuff like uh, teacher evaluation uh, protocols, very similar to the, what the Gates foundation was doing in its study um, at the time. And so, yeah, to the extent that like, uh, no child left behind was bad, like race right. to the top was like, was, ch- was also like a, a whole problem, like, like huge problem. Where but, but- is the billionaire philanthropist who's going to do a study about maybe like, what if we gave kids in public schools like better food right? <laughs> right. and then well- measured their engagement and test scores as a result of giving them better food? What if we made sure that every person in this district who is homeless was suddenly not homeless well, and no, then measure their engagement after not being homeless. No billionaire is going to do that. They're all going to, they're all they want to do is measure these kids' Q zones. You these know, it's interventions like, are ugh. so this simple. Like, but this is the, what I like to refer to as the fiction of policy areas. Um, we, we treat the, the whole like discourse around this, the professionalization, we have schools of education policy. We have all of these people that spend their entire careers, this entire professional managerial class of education policy experts that proceed under the um, auspices of the idea that like there is such a thing as education policy and that it is somehow that you can like solve everything within education policy. There's like a closed system and uh, every outcome has some input that it resides within the system as if mm-hmm. there was no, if the, as if there was no such thing as the political economy, uh, as if there were all of these really, really crucial variables uh, that are just completely off the table. And I mean, I think the same thing happens uh, in, in healthcare as well. We, we talk mm-hmm. about this in the report that like we view public health uh, as this like narrow set of functions that has 
a correspondence to these uh, inputs that can only reside within the system of public health. Uh, <laughs> and so this is just like a really benighted uh, view. And yet I think simply because you have people with billions of dollars, they are allowed to proceed and convincing and training people, uh, training a right. sort of workforce of people with that well, view. And I think it's worth trying to, how to put it, because it's not very difficult to imagine what this, uh, what this new model that they will, um, try, try and put forward will look like. And it's also not very, it's not difficult to imagine that then becoming also this kind of thing that spirals out in the same exact like policy, uh, like discourse that you're talking about, Phil, like out into, um, things that get implemented into other states. So for example, like when, uh, when Cuomo announced this partnership with the Gates foundation, uh, he said, quote, the old model of everybody goes and sits in a classroom and the teacher is in front of that classroom and teaches that class. And you do that all across the city, all across the state, all these buildings, all these physical classrooms. Why? With all the technology you have. I'm telling you right now, I'm putting money on it. Cuomo is going to try and make it so poor kids never have to go into school ever again. Yeah. And that one teacher teaches all the fucking fifth grades in all of fucking downstate. And one teacher teaches all the fifth grades in all of upstate. Like (laughs) this fucking bullshit. I, I mean, yeah, that does that does actually be sound like pretty much exactly the outcome that he's looking for. Yeah. I mean, it, it also strikes me as just like this idea where they're like laptops. Well, that's it. Laptops for everybody. Yeah, totally. The, yeah, like, like the hundred dollar laptop thing. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. I forgot yeah, about those. That? Wasn't that, that was... also a Gates Foundation thing? We're going to give every I kid think... a computer in the right, United those, States? Yeah, those really. Sh- yeah, those shitty green and white computers that was like yeah, from that like, was like um, an initiative from my from like from when i was we in, were like school. in school well, yeah. like yeah. Many, i think like many uh gates foundations things it's like that was one of those uh things that was sort of a a big big ticket policy idea um that was shared by you know a lot of these sort of philanthropic institutions i it don't think it was like just those, a gates like, thing but micro grants where you can support a woman starting a weaving business in guatemala and then like buy her goats or something like, yeah Uh, micro loans for uh, Pell Grant recipients who operate a business for three to five years in a disadvantaged (laughs) community. Um, Meanwhile, internet connectivity in the city of Milwaukee is horrible. I mean, like, uh, meanwhile, like many people in many don't areas have internet. Of the city of New York. Yeah. Hello, Verizon Fios. Where are you? Yeah, right. exactly. so you were coming to Brooklyn seven years ago. I think saying. I can't remember what the exact statistic is, so I will probably say this number wrong. But if I recall, there is a significant percentage of, of NYCHA housing where residents do not have Internet access yeah. in their apartments because well, it is so expensive. And this York. is this is actually the thing, though. This is what I th- I think. So, you know, extrapolating from these comments, I think actually there is I, I think maybe the long term uh, mm-hmm. achievement here could be. Um, you be, or like maybe then the long term you end up uh, having like a bunch of funneling basically poor kids through essentially doing like University of Phoenix online, but yeah. for, uh, for really solves the for school public shooting issue. Oh God, don't even <laughs> right? go there. Well, yeah. No, but this but is no, what no, I'm but saying. hold on, no, 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 but, wait, but, but but the but then you have, um, but I, I think in the in the short term it actually looks a lot like the McKinsey thing that we talked about last uh, last mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. Um, which is like the there's a McKinsey report on education that talks about how. Um, you know, the first, the first group of students that you should risk sending back to, uh, to schools, uh, to, 
you know, potentially get infected with, uh, by the virus um, or infect each other in like the community and start a whole new fucking uh, wave of, of infections that the first people that you should send back to the schools are like the the poor, the disabled and the children of essential workers. And I think that like you will see I, I can imagine that some of the things that um, that Cuomo is talking about can be, again, like rather flexibly interpreted to be for the short term. Mm-hmm. You know, you build out the uh, like Zoom classroom infrastructure basically for, you know, wealthy kids and mm-hmm. kids who like kids who have Internet connections and and who, you know, are in uh, stable living conditions where they can like go and do online classes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you flip it after a certain point and you make it so that like it's right. a privilege to go back to school, you know? I mean, um, I, I can't imagine that there are many families where there are multiple kids and each of the kid has their own yeah. computer too. Yeah. Like I, I, that's the thing to me that, that I think is just very terrifying is that I think what we're going to see is an attempt to completely sort of stratify education as being, um, along class lines, even more so than it's already been trending towards for the past well, seven years. Really well, can we also? Yeah. Right, yeah. I think it. I think it would also be worth maybe. I mean, I I know a lot more about like the school system in New York City as opposed to throughout uh, like upstate. But like, we should probably like uh, explain for people who are not New Yorkers that like the backdrop of like New, at least the New York City public school system is that like it is. Uh, one of, if not the most uh, racially uh, and class segregated school systems in the country. It's also and the like, largest in the country. Too. Exactly. And it, it educates the most people and it does so already in a way where it creates, has, has essentially a two tiered system where a very select minority of kids go to uh, public schools that if you were to see them would resemble a, like high-end private prep school and the rest of the kids in the system go to like, you know, what, what look like, um, sort of like middling, uh, like urban public schools. I think the thing is like Cuomo has priorities, right. And, and dealing with the education expenditures has been a priority from the start of his COVID preparedness. I mean, we saw it in the budget, um, department of education was like one of the first things to be sort of put on the chopping block. They, obfuscated the fact that they weren't increasing spending by sort of just combining some federal money and like lying about it essentially just spinning it differently i think what we're gonna see is like you know in the same way that the gates foundation like has done a great job of spreading the ideas of like depopulation as being the only solution (laughs) to climate crisis or malaria too like sorry did you say bill gates or michael moore (laughs) Jesus Christ! Did uh, you just watch that? By the way, no, I don't recommend. No, and Artie I'm not and I, going to. <laughs> it's terrible. Artie and I did because we were curious, and we watched the entire thing. Literally halfway through, at like almost exactly the halfway point, <laughs> it pivots so hard to ecofash to like we need to rapidly depopulate the earth. Um, right. That yeah, I don't know. It was, it was pretty. The only answer is depopulation. Hey, Thanks, I'm doing Michael. my part. I got zero kids. I'm over here not having any kids. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've been I've been I've been not having kids for years and I'm going to continue to not have kids. I I don't know what y'all are doing. That's patriotic, Vince. Thank you. you could, Thank yeah, you. you know. uh, I'm a hero. Doing your part to save the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the new solidarity. That's that's gonna be my that's gonna be like my ecofash uh documentary. Is it's gonna talk about climate change and then there's gonna be like a hard pivot to uh to queer fascism maybe now is a good time to transition to talking about the about the uh, fact that well actually b- before we even talk about what has been going on with unemployment systems in states uh we have as we mentioned last week uh you know it's thursday again so we have unemployment numbers again so another oh 3.5 million people uh have uh what's the total number now oh god it's 33 like and a half million wow yeah. what's our percentage at total most a lot, <laughs> a lot. Big percentage. As, as, Phil, percentage. as Phil put it earlier, one metric shit ton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it doesn't even matter at this point. It's like the the numbers at some point just fail to capture the not only re- the reality of of like how many people are unemployed, but the uncertainty that I think so many people who remain employed, um, feel. yeah, and totally. also the people who are now. Uh, no longer collecting unemployment, but are now being forced by their bosses back into very, very limited shifts, like yep. four hours a week, five hours a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not making even remotely what they would be with unemployment or with their normal job and with no benefits uh, and exposed to far more risks than they would be uh, were they able to stay at home. And now we're going to be told that this is not just uh tolerable or acceptable but th- this is in fact the right way to go right yeah and you know the other thing is that i think it's really it's really hard to mobilize around these particular policies they're so uh low salience obviously right now it's like it's hard to you know we're not getting people out necessarily to uh uh to protest and there's so much going on that finding one focal point do you do a tenants union thing or do you do right. the unemployment? Like it's, you know, I think it's very, very hard for people on the ground to like pick their spots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like we talked about this um, with Hannah Black when we, uh, when Hannah came on, mm-hmm. um, which was, uh, what, what, what was it? I felt like attention drain or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Other, I mean, outside of like mobilization, I think the thinking about the, so obviously like unemployment numbers are high. And the, I think the main thing that we want to talk about uh, and get to in a second is the is the like litany of states that have set up systems to basically like right. narc on people and keep them off some of, of unemployment. Some of which were pre-existing. Some of which were pre-existing, <laughs> but I I I, I want to point out one interesting thing, which is just a study that I think either came out today or uh, or recently, maybe a couple of days ago, uh, as recently as a couple of days ago, uh, which is there's a study out from U Chicago that is looking at basically like a huge aggregate of data from ADP, which is the big company that mm-hmm. does like payroll, payroll stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, intimately familiar with it from my, yeah, love uh, her. from, <laughs> from my studio. Uh, but the, but basically they, they look at this data and some of the things that they draw from the conclusions of this, which again, since ADP is such a huge company that does it payrolls for so many businesses, especially small businesses. Right. Um, but also like a ton of huge businesses too. Um, but what they, what they show is that for like first and foremost, that as you might imagine, like small and medium sized, like businesses are hit the most, um, right. likely, likely resulting as they draw conclusions to in the, the fact that probably a lot of those jobs will be as, as makes sense gone 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like totally gone. Like they're not going to, there's not going to be this like magic rebound that people are suggesting when they talk about a oh, reopen the economy or whatever. Like there's mm-hmm. not going to cover like a lot of people who have lost their jobs. They are, those jobs are like not going to come back. Or even if they um, haven't, like you're, especially for like tipped workers or service industry employees, the volume that rely on volume, that volume will not be there. Right. Exactly. Simply so we have not be there. So there are going to be a ton of people who, and this is like, you know, again, like fuck jobs or whatever. I like, I don't fucking care about jobs. What I do care about is that the, as a result, because the way that our economy is structured, a lot of people are going to be really fucked. A lot of people are, all, right. are already really fucked, but like a lot of people will like, be more so for a very long time, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, so, uh, you know, that, like that conclusion that I, that I just brought up is, is again, pretty common sense. It makes a lot of sense, um, coming out of this, coming out of this study. It's like, you practically wouldn't, I would imagine have to even like look at numbers to prove that. Um, (laughs) like, uh, just, you you know, almost basically you could determine that from anecdotal evidence. But one thing that is, uh, pretty important to highlight here is that, so in their conclusion, they state, um, that uh, quote the under the overwhelming brunt of the employment decline is concentrated among lower wage workers. The bottom twenty percent of wage earners account for nearly thirty six percent of all job loss. So most of the people wow. who are actually being becoming unemployed, these like three point five million uh, or four million or whatever, however many millions per week that are uh, being announced as having uh, gone to seek unemployment, they are all they are predominantly you know more like people who are lower wage workers. Um, mm-hmm. And but one I, funny, sorry, just re- really quick. Yeah, yeah. One funny um, result of this that they they point out is uh, actually, I mean, it's not funny. It's actually quite uh, terrifying, and I'm not looking forward to this data potentially being used as a talking point, let's say, oh, for dear. Trump's uh, reelection campaign. But uh, I guess the the amount of low wage workers that have been fired or like who are no longer employed mm-hmm. the amount of uh, low wage workers who are like no longer in the workforce has actually like the sheer amount of that uh, new unemployment has made it so that the average wage is actually significantly up oh my god Jesus. <laughs> since Jesus the Christ. coronavirus right but, but it's because right, like because for the most so many part, people, people aren't employed it's for managers right yeah. Who are probably only employed as long as they are needed to make the phone calls to lay people right, off. Right. Yeah. Wait. Only wait a right. couple months for that. that right. Like, and that I was happen, but. exactly. And that's that's the point that I I also wanted to make is that like I you know there are, there are stupid people who have looked at you know the the unemployment numbers every week and instead of saying holy shit, 3.5 million people this week were laid off or needed to seek unemployment, but who are saying, actually, the number is kind of going down. I would like to say to those people that like, you know, there's going to be inevitably another huge wave of layoffs that happen after businesses, you know, that, that as B said, rely on volume are going to open and then are going to close because they don't have enough volume to sustain themselves. And at this point they might, you know, still be like hanging on, having closed the business, furloughed all of their workers, you know, and, and are thinking that business, you know, are are relying on the fact that business is going to pick up uh, as soon as um, like quote unquote, the economy is open, but who are, who are going to have to like lay off a bunch of workers as soon as the economy does open and, and there is no business still. So it's thinking about like deadspin though. I feel like there is another aspect of this where people see that number and they go, 
great. This is great leverage when things open back up, no matter how long it takes. Everyone will be so desperate for work. I will have so much power, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and I think that that's actually, that highlights the, the central like problem with, I mean, and again, I think this is something that even people on the left have continued to sort of frame in this way, which is that like, as long as this is treated as some sort of essential conflict between like opening up and public health and, you know, rebounding or recovery and, you know, uh, social distancing, then it, it really does sort of like create this completely fictional and and unnecessary like divide between workers who can stay at home and whose jobs are relatively safe in all of this and those who are not and, and live uh, more precarious lives. I was even thinking that in the um, Supreme court oral arguments in Wisconsin, the right. chief justice, oh God, yeah. uh, patience Rogensack, um, referred to, uh, the, the lawyer for the state was arguing that in Brown County, which is where green Bay is, um, and where the meatpacking plants are that like, uh, that there had been a, you know, obviously a new wave of cases and the, the, the chief justice intervened to say, um, well, but, but those, those aren't driven by the normal people in Brown County. Those are driven by the meat packers. Keeping in mind that the green Bay Packers are named after meat packers. Um, this is <laughs> I did not literally know that. our state's like one of our state's biggest sports franchises is named after these so-called normal, normal, not normal people, um, no. that, uh, Rogan Sack is like referring to. So, I mean, it's just like these, as long well, as, I'm as long as we look, not, does not normal people are the brown residents of Brown County, I'm assuming. Exactly. Right? And I but again, but as like as long as this conflict is situated around the like in the terms of like the capitalist political economy, this this will be um the fracture that that continues to be set up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also like worth uh mentioning just the I don't know if it was a like a White House executive order that that essentially designated meatpacking plants uh, essential businesses. And then, yes. um, yeah, this week. Uh, so forcing uh, a lot of those uh, employees to stay at work and... and There's um, chicken and beef plants in particular. Yeah, actually. had to have to... Basically forcing those workers to have to decide between their life and their livelihood. Um, and, and additionally creating, obviously, uh, you know, those businesses are still liable if people do get sick and the working conditions are, uh, still poor. liable for now, mm-hmm. still liable for now. We'll see what we can do about that. Exactly. I think that would probably take us into our next topic, but before, before we do, uh, Trump, even himself, because he's so fucking good at just like literally can't tow a single line. He always has to say the quiet part out loud. He literally said, uh, this will help them with their liability. So essentially what he's like, what, what the, the administration is trying to do is create a fact pattern, um, to allow like the conservative Supreme court when this, you know, when, when a case Mm -hmm. of like a dead worker eventually does come to them for them to basically be able to say like, well, this isn't on us. This was, this Mm -hmm. was, uh, they were essential workers. And and those plants couldn't possibly have uh, been able to acquire PPE for their workers like that. That would have been insane. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I just think that that's like uh, that's worth noting. It's a it's it's a slightly small like development this week, but it it is just super fucked up. And it does sort of, I don't know, take us into our our next topic. I don't think we even really talked about the unemployment reporting stuff. Ohio, the, like 
the yeah the Ohio and yeah so we it's so we've not just seen, Ohio too we've but. seen uh, I think the first that I heard about this was Ohio but I think we've now seen something like six or seven other states also move forward with this um, where they have either created or started enforcing. Um, in conjunction with moves to start reopening their economies, ways for employers to effectively uh, deny people benefits if they are refusing to return to work out of fear for their lives. Um, They're calling it a voluntary quit, right? Yes, exactly. And I was looking at actually one of the tools, um, actually the Ohio one in in particular, which is essentially just a form, right, um, where it says like, did you uh, ask the employee to return to work? What did, did they refuse? Was it like a reasonable refusal? Uh, did you provide a safe workplace? Was their refusal justified? And of course, there's no tool to report an employer trying to bring you back to work <laughs> in unsafe conditions. Of course not. No, because that, which actually might be the more useful information for the state to have. That is clearly not as much the priority as kicking as many people off of unemployment as possible. Again, I feel like so much of this is actually about creating the conditions which gives owners more leverage over their employees in this Mm -hmm. situation. And this seems to be priority number one across the board, both in like terms of uh, how hospitals are treating their workers, how states are treating their workers, all of it. You know, I, I think we've got... Again, I know this is like something that I've said over and over. We have two like drastically different ideas about what's going on that are competing right now. And one is like, I think there was a study, 80% of people in the United States that were surveyed were like, no, I don't feel safe going to work right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I think if you, if you want to think about what is back of this, what is back of the reporting form and what is back of these uh, policies related to like pushing people back to work, what these governors uh, and their labor secretaries and what Eugene Scalia uh, <laughs> at, the, at the Department of Labor want is something that is actually, I think, common to the way that uh, I think is would be an ideal set of like rhetorical conditions for conservatives in the broader sense, which is that in a crisis like this, what you, what they really want to do is create an individuated or really enforce an individuated sense of of risk and responsibility that number Mm -hmm. one, if you uh, choose not to go back to work, despite the fact that there are health has likely to be health hazards there, that is your choice. And you bear the brunt of that uh, decision economically. It is no one else's responsibility to have sympathy for you. And on the other hand, if you go back to work and you contract coronavirus and die, (laughs) That was, beca- that was not that was not because your employer fucked up. That wasn't because no. they sent you into a, a a a death trap. It's because you didn't take proper precautions. Maybe you didn't wash your hands enough. Maybe you mm-hmm. didn't wear <laughs> PPE. Maybe you didn't wear a still suit fitted in desert fashion. You know. Well, um, and then the, but yeah, but I mean the same that, fucking probably, time. You know, I, what did you do on your personal time? Right. <laughs> Right. Do you ever sit in your truck and like to think about businesses all day? <laughs> there was a there was a hearing that took place last week. Um, the Wisconsin State Legislature had held one of its only hearings around this stuff, and the hearing was closed to the public, and it only held uh, had testimony from one set of organizations which represented manufacturers in the state. Wow, <laughs> lovely mask off. So that's the real government of Wisconsin, and they held it in person. Uh, yes, I mean quite. <laughs> 
<laughs> and quite literally mask off too, because for all we can talk mm-hmm. about like, oh yeah, the, these em- employers are saying, you know, it's up to you to like furnish PPE or whatever, or you have to, or like, uh, like if, if they catch COVID and die that, uh, like it's their fault or whatever. There are a ton of, um, employers who, I mean, you see stories constantly about employers who are telling their workforce explicitly that they will be fired if they wear masks. Right. So, and we had the first death of an Amazon worker from COVID in New York city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is explicitly one of the places where they were demanding that people not wear them. So, I mean, but this, I think, just highlights something that's even more important, which is that, like, you, I think, practically speaking, the Democrats have far more leverage than they usually do, but they're not, they're not really like offering, it would be hard to say that, like, the party, even as a whole, even as like centrist Democrats are offering any kind of like, alternative way of understanding what's happening here or right. uh, interpreting it. They're, they're simply just sort of like rolling along, um, making a series of policy changes that are, I mean, fairly low visibility. They're not, I mean, it's, it's sort of, they're just, I think, sort of hoping that the election allows like Trump to self-immolate, but they're not, mm-hmm. it's like, they're not using these opportunities to like really I don't know. It, this is not a pre New Deal moment. If you, no, if you yeah. read that off of the uh, the Democratic Party's like <laughs> positioning uh, maneuvers here, and so like now we're moving into this like uh, new piece of legislation or this like uh, this next uh, recovery bill or next relief package, and again, you're, I think you're not seeing that. I feel like it's almost irresponsible for us to even be repeating the words that they're ascribing to it because in no way, shape, or form will either of any of the plans that they've been pushing like provide relief or recovery in any meaningful way. You know, yeah. like this is what I hate about everyone's being like, oh, the, I haven't gotten my stimulus check yet or I'm waiting for the stimulus money. It's like, we shouldn't even be calling it that because it's not. Right, it's, it's, your, it's your subsistence check. Like, hey, I wish yeah. I could even call it that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, only I mean, one. Can and, you subsist and, on one thing one time? I think Nancy's <laughs> right. office is putting more work into coordinating her Corona appropriate outfits than they are into like actually passing meaningful legislation that'll save people's lives Probably. or help them not I mean, be miserable. I mean, I think it's telling that you see even kind of like uh, extremely centrist uh, journalists saying like, um, hey, like this is kind of weird. I mean, outside of even Congress, like what's happening? Because we could, obviously we'll we'll talk about uh, in a second, like what's what the Democrats are are starting to propose for sort of like the the next what is this phase four, phase five, phase whatever. Four, it'd be phase four. Uh, yeah, phase four. Of so many. Not phases. that one, two, or three did shit. Yeah, but yeah. like again, like a, a a bunch of sort of like general liberal commentators are starting to notice even that uh, it's a bit strange that if you look at like the last time that there was a, obviously the the conditions of the pandemic change it. But if you look at the last time that um, there was a recession, right. If you look at the 2008 recession uh, during which, uh, you know, Obama and McCain were running against each other, you saw like there was, there was this like uh, perspective basically where like Obama was running uh, his campaign or the, or the, the Obama campaign was running this uh, strategy of sort of like, act as though you are already the de facto federal government, push forward all of these proposals and stuff, signal what you would do. Um, And I think it says a lot about, you know, like Democrats overall as a party um, and also like what you 
possibly see from what you're possibly starting to see from this like congressional response that like the Biden campaign clearly has no interest in doing that. I mean, right. they're they're only beginning to like run or capacity. Right. Well, but they're only beginning to run like essentially like a media campaign of like, look, Joe Biden's fine. He's still <laughs> He's like still around. Look at him there, eating ice decline? cream with Keegan Michael Key yeah. or whatever uh, on Zoom. Look, like, look at him alive. Literal look, at, ad, look at that. Look at that virile, ad. alive man. Joe yeah. Biden. He is breathing. We swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not just a ghost like, yet. Yeah. Right. Joe Biden still breathing. Joe Biden's America. okay. We just sent him to live on a farm upstate. The lights yeah. started to flicker in my house last night. I, I think it was Joe Biden. <laughs> Me, me Every year book we fell leave off the, the desk door and open. I didn't push it. It was Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, okay. Can I? Can I? Like, I want to put meat on the bones here. Yeah, yeah let's do what, it. What are we talking about, really? This next plan, the Democrats, one of their proposals. So they've focused a lot of this around the Paycheck Protection Program. Can mm -hmm. I? I want to just reemphasize PPP. People use the abbreviation. It is the Paycheck Protection Program. Okay, so here's mm -hmm. here's the small business relief portion of this legislation. Democrats have planned to eliminate a requirement that businesses spend 75% of the loan on payroll, which limits the use of money for rent and other expenses. Now, I understand that there are some companies that are, you know, most of their small business, like their, their cost is devoted to things like rent, uh, especially if you're like in an expensive downtown shop. Fine. It's called the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, <laughs> right. And here's Pelosi on that. I don't even know why we have that. And she's referring to the 75% payroll requirement. I don't even know why we have that in there. I guess to make sure that people are spending it on employees, but we want to help the business. We don't want to complicate things. What? Can, can I? Excuse wait, me? That's can what I, Pelosi said. Can I? Yes. First of all... Central <laughs> Park. Central Park. <laughs> uh, can I just... Two points I think I need to make in tandem here because number one, Nancy Pelosi also seems to be in cognitive decline, having forgotten what the Paycheck Protection Program was initially conceived of. Oh, for. she doesn't care what it was conceived I, of. She's oh, a was I it really I, conceived of for that purpose, Vince? I don't think it was. Maybe, I mean, I don't even maybe think it was it's conceived. not forgetting. Maybe it's forgetting <laughs> to to not say the quiet part loud. Well, <laughs> precisely. But but the other thing is like, first of all, that that program was definitely not conceived of anytime recently. It was definitely just like pulled off some ghouls, like weird, uh, like shelf of gross policies. But number two, you know, it would be a great way to make sure that businesses don't have to worry about paying rent to <laughs> fucking forgive everybody's Damn goddamn rent. <laughs> like it's, it, Vince, it seems come so on easy. Now. You're just being crazy. It's I know. Crazy, and then, man. It's and crazy then talk. You could mandate that they spend a hundred percent of the money on, on, uh, on employee pay. Like right. it, it's, it's just, it's just such a funny, it's just such a funny thing when you like, you know, examine the the counterfactual to to anything that they say when they're like, well, there's no possible way that that we could could even engineer a system that would work that way. It's right. like, what? <laughs> I mean, again, it's like it's not that yeah. I don't care about small businesses. I do. And I realize that, like, anytime you have a formula like this, there's going to be absurd results. I get yeah. that. And I'm sure that there whatever formula we devise, there are going to be people and businesses that do not get what they 
feel to be a fair share. And that is horrible. And we should try to use policy to like solve that. But this, the whole purpose of this thing was to ensure that most people uh, don't have to uh, lose their jobs uh, as a result of this uh, crisis. And I mean, for a, for there to be this sort of provision without any sort of increase, say in, in unemployment insurance or Mm -hmm. employment insurance uh, or any sort of like universal payment to people and B for Pelosi to frame it as we want to help the business. We don't want to complicate things, but those pesky employees that make up, I don't know the entire economy. We don't want to like (laughs) deal with that shit. Um, That is just politically how how do you read that as something Deranged. other than politically suicidal? Like, yeah. like I in a don't... world where you're not at all worried about being unseated or thrown out of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just like the yeah I I don't know. And this is like it, not the first statement of hers that I've read that was like this. And I'm like, what? What are I, I you just, thinking? You literally don't have to go on record. She's not thinking. <laughs> right, and it's yeah, I, I would agree. You know, but it's it's sort of like. To put this in like broader context, the fault lines of this bill are not going to be PPP because that's a place where like Democrats and Republicans more or less on the same page, uh, maybe a few disagreements around the, the margins of like the way that the formula is structured and the particular industries that that happen to have captured each party. But um, I think <laughs> the irony is that like that is not the place where there's going to be like conflict, what you're going to want to watch is how Democrats respond to this two lines in the sand that Republicans seem to have said at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is liability, which is something that we actually, I think one of our first episodes on Mm -hmm. COVID uh, we talked about is the entire orienting frame of the politics, which is indemnification. Yep. How are people who have power going to avoid being held responsible for anything bad that happens and actually arrogate more power to themselves in the, in the midst of this? And so Mitch McConnell is actually referring to what, what might happen soon as, quote, a litigation epidemic. Uh, yeah, that um, was a cute that was a cute turn of phrase. But what I think is funny is how old this strategy is. The torts spin. Yeah. yeah. Like. Can anybody remember? Classic. Yeah, this is like classic early 2000s Republican. Remember like, the McDonald's coffee case? Yes. Yes. This How is many like, years did we have to hear on Nightly News that we were entering into a new era of a hyper litigious society and it was going to ruin the economy? <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 like Democrats are are like working for trial attorneys as opposed to trying to help the economy. That's like a that's like vintage. I'm just saying it's well, I mean, not to mention the fact that like how incredibly difficult it is to even be able to legally advocate for yourself if you're in a situation like that. Right. Like you mm-hmm. need a lot of money to bring a torts case because it's long and complicated. And that's why torts is like the sort of venue of last resort for recompensation if someone's been wronged, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's literally what it's designed for is when there is something outside of the law that has happened that is like needs to be addressed, torts is your last venue, right? And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. I actually don't even know that the, that what Republicans are, Republicans, what they're doing here, it's not even substantively speaking, it's not like there were going to be that many cases 
uh, individual cases Mm -hmm. uh, surrounding liability because of the number one, it costs a lot of money to lawyer up. Number two, your boss always has the better ability to lawyer up than you do. Better lawyers. Always. Yeah. Yeah. The, the purpose of it, as I see it, is sort of two, twofold. One is to reinforce culturally the idea that uh, it's not your, not anyone's responsibility but yours if you die. And number two, <laughs> to reinforce the idea that we can't hold capital collectively responsible for mm-hmm. what happens as a result of this. No, like that's, exactly. I see it as a much more hegemonic piece of legislation rather than functional. I mean, like maybe some firms will do better under this, you know, like a smaller mm-hmm. firm could be more easily taken out of business by a case. But like, I don't really see the, this as being a functional piece of legislation. It's hegemonic. No, all it, all it does mm-hmm. is it says, listen, you do not have the right to not want to die. That's mm-hmm. not an option in this country. And it hasn't been. We've seen that with healthcare, right? Like you have no right to survival. There is no amount of inherent um, living that you are entitled to do. It is all it is all up to you as you function within, you know, the st- structure of labor. Right. You, you didn't make enough money to eat and, and, and you died? Should have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, baby. Yeah, exactly. You, uh... You got sick because uh, you you didn't get you didn't get any health care from your job. Should have gotten a better job. Sounds like a shitty job. Wouldn't Can't have taken get a it. job. Up oh, too bad. Should have <laughs> decided to I don't know refuse medical treatment and stop going to the ER because you have a flu. Right? Like why were, why didn't you choose to be born rich? I'm just saying. <laughs> I know. Well, we all it's have great. that choice in the boss baby factory. <laughs> you know. So uh, another thing that uh, they're like potentially going to I guess the. Democrats and Republicans are sort of like whatever negotiating over in the next uh, iteration of this bill. I think you mean mind melding. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Artie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I blacked out for a second and then. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, that they're that they're uh, agreeing on that they're sacrificing uh, the American people to is um, uh, some like just just one or two as as Tim Scott puts it, just like one or two sentences that. uh, would essentially cap uh, people's unemployment uh, benefits um, with the addition of the $600 a week to 100% of their income. So, uh, you know, when when the $600 a week payment was initially, like, announced, um, they're, like, it, it's just flat. It goes to everybody. It's, it's just a payment that goes out. Um, but a bunch of, I think, like, afterwards, like, a bunch of Republicans realized that, like, uh, in in their often in their states uh p- people would be able to receive like up to like 120% of their salaries just because uh the minimum wage in those places is so fucking low and they realized that that went counter to their bootstraps uh ideology and they are uh looking to basically looking to put in language uh to make it more meager <laughs> because right. I mean- the idea that so, the idea that a poor person could like save money in a in a time when it would probably be good to have a little bit of extra cash stored away or inconceivable that, right inconceivable or that uh that like a poor person could be allowed to build up a savings um well, beyond that it's just like it is the sort of grand mythos of like work requiring incentivization mm-hmm. right like i think our show is a very good example how human beings can do a lot of work simply out of the desire to like learn and have a social space. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's an activity that we do. Mm -hmm. Like some people do this thing as a job, right? But for us, it's an activity. It's like a social activity. Mm -hmm. Most people enjoy being able to do something all day and they don't want their time not structured. And the whole idea that we, you know, need to be incentivized to return to work is only hinged on the fact that that is the only thing that allows jobs to remain as shitty as they are. Right. So, yeah, I mean, maybe just to sort of wrap us out, we can sort of check in on our latest drug developments. How does sure. that sound? And our, yeah, and our so old friend Gilead. Our old friend Gilead. We've been talking about remdesivir since the very beginning, actually, um, of our COVID coverage as well. And it's another thing that is uh, just sort of cycling back. Uh, when we first started talking about it, we talked about how often in pandemics, which we've seen in the case of Ebola and SARS and MERS, um, that you have shelved pharmaceutical projects that have been uh, tested and deemed to be unimpressive suddenly rolled back out. And our example that we used was AZT during the AIDS crisis, right. um, which actually proved to be quite detrimental. We've seen this with uh, hydroxychloroquine as well, which is uh, not demonstrated uh, much promise at all uh, in most of these studies that have been initiated so far. And now we are starting to get in some of the latest data on remdesivir, which is, again, as we were saying, a Gilead product, which was um, tried, it was pulled off the shelf uh, and tried on Ebola, did not uh, show good results, and it's been rolled back out for COVID. And uh, the initial response has been not statistically significant, which is a pretty, um, it sounds uh, maybe more vague if you're not familiar with like the language of how these medical studies work, but within That's the context. pretty definitively like. It means not, it doesn't work. It means it doesn't work. It, yeah. it means it's not, um, it not only doesn't work, it like really shows absolutely no uh, change. Can I tell you what is statistically significant though? Prayer. They're prof. They're. they're <laughs> I was gonna say they're they're stock they're share price. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. It's. <laughs> and the and the fucking and the uh, ridiculous like public. I mean the fact that the, the fact that Wait, the, if the NIH public will... conversation around this has become. But will will Gilead make the drug affordable, affordable as right. opposed to God does this it. actually even work at work all? At Why all? are we being? Why are we being talked to about remdesivir all the time? It's, I mean, <laughs> looking into the method of <laughs> action so of this, of this drug. <laughs> no, but having looked into the method of action of this drug, and obviously, I'm not a physician. I'm not a clinical research a researcher. I am, in all capacity, is a, a layman and a proud dilettante. But I have read um, dozens of studies about medications like this just to try and understand what my own medication is doing in my body because it's, you know, psychologically helpful to understand why you feel like shit all the time um, and are going more blind. So I was studying the, like reading the mechanism of action and in, in my layman's take, I am surprised that uh, this even got the line of it being so promising because it, it's really, if you look at like the results that they got out of Ebola and then if you look at the results they're getting now, it seems to not actually have ever produced any quickening of the recovery time, which is actually what remdesivir is supposed to do. So it's weird because to me, it's like being talked about as if it's some sort of like curative or interventional agent in the media, which has been the same thing with hydroxychloroquine, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
is that it's been talked about as if it's a drug to cure COVID and that it just didn't quite cure COVID or whatever. But actually, these things aren't even being tested for doing that. (laughs) They're being tested to try and attempt to shorten the recovery period. Which, Um, which, yeah, like would actually, if there was such a drug that could shorten the amount of time that like some but he would need to be in intensive care. Like that could potentially be like a useful thing. But, but, but the fact that like even, but do you know it, why it would be useful? Do you understand why they're studying that? Cause that to me is the thing oh, that is so clear. Oh, absolutely. It's because it's because, uh, it, it would, it would save money for hospitals. No, like, no, no, no. If you can reduce the time that a patient needs to be treated, mm-hmm. right. If you can reduce the time that it requires to recover, then it means the hospital will have more capacity, which means you can open things up, let more people get sick and be Mm -hmm. hospitalized because you can use that to manage the flow of patients (laughs) if you don't have additional equipment, beds or PPE. So rather than build more beds, rather than make long-term investment in expanding our care infrastructure, rather than centralizing the planning and distribution of medical supplies and storage of medical supplies across the United States instead of centralizing hospital organizations and empowering doctors. No, we don't have to do any of those changes if we can just turn the dial a little bit and try and slow the flow and flatten the curve enough to delay action that really is needed, that would really support providers and that would save people's lives. That is why they are investigating things that shorten recovery. Like remdesivir, no one ever thought remdesivir was going to like really, really save people's lives other than the fact that like if you can shorten recovery, you have like a hopefully better likelihood of surviving, right? Because you're sick for less long. Right. 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 There are more chance. There are fewer chances to die if you can recover quicker and it's less stress on the body. So obviously it's twofold, but in my mind, it just comes down to that sort of fundamental principle with like how we understand illness in this country, which is about a state of exception from work. And Mm -hmm. all of the motivation right now, all of the research, all of the push, all of the proposed interventional legislation and uh, quote unquote stimulus or recovery resources that are being doled out, do not, none of them are intended to address people's health. Or save people's lives. They are intended to return people to work. That is the entire framework with which people are planning their response and recovery to this. And it doesn't serve doctors and it doesn't serve patients. Mm -mm. All it serves is capitalism. Right. And this study showing no significant results is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. And it is boosting Gilead stock. Mm -hmm. And it is still being talked about as if it's a wonder drug. Well, and I, I that think that would we, cure COVID. I think the other interesting story that we we read uh, before before talking about this was uh, basically a bunch of a report uh, in Stat News where a bunch of doctors essentially are quoted complaining about why the like provision of this drug is so. Um, like uneven essentially mm-hmm. that, that, that like certain hospitals get anointed as like the ones that are, you know, allowed to, 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 or are, are given this drug to prescribe to patients like it. And it completely, uh, glosses over the fact that like the drug has been found to not 
be effective? Yeah, it's, it's much like the schools that were anointed with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, <laughs> money. Actually, not even their money, because like you know, most of it was actually city and their, uh, their surveillance and state money, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But yeah, get yeah those hey, those, what, hey, what, those schools that you? were anointed with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation surveillance. Uh, <laughs> why won't you? Why won't you cookie track our kids? Come. Come, uh, come, yeah. use, come well, use cookies to track our kids. Hey, hey. I'll, I'll throw it back even further. It's exactly reminiscent of when in the 1890s, the AMA decided which schools could and could not teach uh, medicine and who could not to be make a sure, doctor because they said that... To make sure that, that no black doctors, Right, yeah. Basically. There's literally, well, a, doctors, if you look right? this up, there is a memo uh, mm-hmm. from a meeting of the American Medical Association, I think it's in the 1880s, saying there are already enough black doctors to accommodate the entire like black population in the United States and we do not need any more black doctors. And if we allow people to keep educating black doctors, we will have an epidemic of doctors who <laughs> cannot work because there will be no black people to treat. And of course, epidemic of they doctors. can't treat white people. The, the, then. A, the AMA really, really needs to be reeducated with the term epidemic. The AMA really needs to just die. Yes, to go away. Some institutions just need to be over. They don't need to be re-educated. They need to just be abolished and disassembled. Yeah, and I think to, the you AMA know, is creative destruction. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so I think that's maybe a good place to to wrap out. Um, mm-hmm. Any any final thoughts on uh, on any of the above? No. Uh, Bernie's back. Vote for Bernie. Vote in ah. the New York State primary if you live in Which New York is State. Back on for yes. now. And everyone until they ultimately probably appeal that decision and send it to like the Supreme Court or something, and the Supreme Court is like, "Fuck no, you can't." That's you know it. <laughs> in the meantime, though, if you do live in New York State, even if we are going to have it taken away from us again, it would be great to statistically have the numbers that show that after it was stated that the election was sort of reinstated, that a lot of people then requested vote by mail. Yeah, so right? request so your vote by mail ballot. Even if oh, you think if- this is like futile, I highly recommend doing that request because um, everyone qualifies now because of. COVID. COVID and yeah. it would be great to show some receipts in that respect. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So Bernie, Bernie is, uh, for now back on the ballot in New York and, um, I'm sure we'll talk about that going forward. Yes, um, indeed. I think that about does it for, t- for today. As always, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. And if you'd like an extra death panel per week and to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You can also check out our brand new white paper um, from the National Coronavirus Recovery Panel. Um, that's at uh, covidrecoverypanel.com. And we talked about that uh, white paper in our most recent patron episode, exactly. um, which I highly recommend. Thank so. you. Become a patron. Yes. And um, I think with that, that's about it for this episode. Stay alive another week. All right. Bye. We'll see you next time. Bye.